HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Root 11 Potato Chips. Made with a secret recipe and superior ingredients, their mission is to make an outstanding product in a safe and clean environment. To learn more, visit rt11.com. This week on Meet and 3, we rethink surplus by exploring how innovators are promoting sharing mindsets and responding to excess in creative ways. The whole life cycle of food would be the third largest greenhouse gas emitter behind China and the United States if it were a country. You know, in the age of COVID, where a lot of those institutional processors did grind to a halt and a lot of farms had to dump milk in Pennsylvania, even while supermarket cases were, were bare, the organic market stayed strong. They source all of these ingredients, they do all of this work, and then they just boil it for a few minutes and then they throw it away. Tune in to Meet and 3, available wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Inside Julia's Kitchen, the podcast, the Julia Child Foundation for Gastronomy and the Culinary Arts. I'm your host, Todd Shulkin, the Foundation's Executive Director. Our show takes you inside the Foundation's world to meet the talented people we have the great fortune of learning from all the time. On today's show, we welcome Bull Rush chef and owner Rob Conley. In today's episode, we'll talk to Rob about Ozark cuisine, how he mixes history and sustainability at a St. Louis restaurant. And we'll hear Rob's Julia moment. Stay with us. We'll be right back. As always, we launch the conversation with an inspiration from Julia. Julia is quite known, well known for saying, find something you're passionate about and keep tremendously interested in it. She was trying to encourage people to dig deep into what interests them. And more specifically, I think she hoped that they too would discover a shared passion for cooking and enjoying good food. As we've talked about many times on this program, Julia loved to meet chefs. She devoured new techniques they showed her and relished the revelations that she learned from culinary history. She was tremendously interested in all of it. 
Someone else who's discovered a similar passion and kept tremendously interested in it is Rob Conley. Rob is the owner and chef at Bull Rush in St. Louis, Missouri. Bull Rush is a restaurant, but it's also kind of a center for research, maybe akin to Ferran Adria's El Bulli or Rene Redzippi's Noma, only in a Midwestern style. Rob and his colleagues are dedicated to sustainable practices, recreating Ozark cuisine, their take on food from very local ingredients, and resurrecting lost seed. Rob began his culinary career after two decades working for nonprofits in marginalized communities. A self-taught chef, he ran the Curious Kumquat, a gourmet market and restaurant in Silver City, New Mexico, where, in 2014, he garnered a James Beard nomination for Best Chef Southwest. He's well-known for his foraging prowess and expertise learned in the wilds of New Mexico, now further refined in his return home to Missouri. He's also the author of Acorns and Cattails, a modern foraging cookbook of forest, farm, and field. He joins us today to share his philosophy about running a sustainable restaurant and to give us a primer on Ozark cuisine. Welcome to the podcast, Rob. Oh, thanks for having me, Todd. We're delighted you could join us. So tell us, how are things going in St. Louis and at Bull Rush right now? Oh, to quote the famous philosophers, it's been a long, strange trip. And, you know, as, as we break out into spring here in all over the country, of course, but uh, here in the Midwest, people are antsy. They are so ready to get back out into the world. And yet I, I have to remind my staff and my customers we're only back where we were last summer when things were pretty bad. And so there's, there's a lot of optimism right now and a lot of enthusiasm. Uh, but I, I'm trying to keep the leash a little bit tighter uh, for, for a little bit longer till we're all at that place where we can go back to somewhat uh, normalcy in our lives. And what kind of service are you offering at the restaurant right now? So we do dine-in, uh, but very, very limited. So e- even before COVID, we only seated 24 guests a night uh, in a, a very large space. And it's because the way we design the kitchen is it's in the center of the room and then completely around it, almost like a theater in the round, we have uh, table height bar seats. And so guests already were... Um, signing up essentially for a two-hour experience where uh, we don't have servers. I cook the food right in front of them with my staff, and we hand it directly to them. We clear their plates, um, and we describe each of the courses. So it, it was already a, a pretty safe environment because the hood in the center of the kitchen is drawing all that air circulation, which meant for us as staff, we had to be extremely diligent in our own protection. And we have. We haven't had anyone get sick throughout this whole process. And so while we did close down for a bit, uh, we opened last fall again, and we've been seating 14 people a night right now, plus carry out food. Wow. I mean, th- that that strikes me that those whose business models, well, that there's been a big spectrum with restaurants and that certain restaurants that had a business model that was more flexible or wasn't repl- as yours uh, depended on a huge staff or various things like that have fared quite differently, actually, or been able to adapt quite differently. I mean, would you say that that actually all things considered, because of this structure, you maybe haven't suffered as much as 
other restaurants? Well, if we're not talking dollars and cents, <laughs> I can say yes. I mean, we also took a huge hit, but you know, I'm not a spring chicken here. I'm 52. And when I did the pivot that everyone else did back in March, April, May of last year, and we went to comfort food and family meals and all these things that everyone else was doing. I just was so um, discouraged and depressed about it. It was one of the lowest times in my life and not, it wasn't the money. It was the fact that when I opened this restaurant, I had a really clear vision of what I wanted to accomplish. Now, I say that, and when we talk about some of the topics that we do at the restaurant, you're going to find out I had no idea what I wanted to do. But as far as the overall idea of me interacting with my customers directly, that was always the core of it. And giving people a unique experience that they'll never get anywhere else, that was the core of it. And so for me to box up I don't know, we never did lasagna, but boxing up lasagna and sending that out to a car, I didn't sign up for that. And and so it took a while. But we, at I think it was uh, early June, late May, we stepped back as a staff and said, look, we didn't want to do plan B here. So what's a new plan A for this long-term reality that we know is coming or that we're a part of? And we made some really fun pivots that were plan A pivots instead of plan B pivots. We started doing, uh, we, we call it park and dine. And it was essentially, imagine doing a seven course tasting dinner at a restaurant like Sonic or A&W where you pull the car up and the sock hop comes up and serves you the food. Well, we did that with tasting menus and it led to all this technologic innovation, um, you, you know, whereas most people are doing QR codes for menus, our QR codes take you to a video where it's me describing the history and the ingredients of the course, which allows that interaction between me and the customer. And at the same time, we were doing a live Zoom. We called it Sights and Sounds of the Kitchen, where they could hear me in the kitchen. And I would oftentimes forget that they were there. And I would be singing very off key or or <laughs> using kitchen language uh, with my staff, joking around. And, and all of a sudden, I'd hear laughter in my ear because uh, hearing the guest that we forgot to mute. And so, you know, it, it ended up being really cool. And even today, um, I get emails, hey, when are you going to do Park and Dine again? And now it's more the business reality. How do I run a restaurant that's still at minimal capacity so I have a minimal staff and yet people have liked these things we've done and they want me to bring them back, uh, which I can't right now. So we're really focused on creating this incredibly safe indoor dining experience for just 14 people a night. We don't turn tables. We don't do any of that stuff. We just get that small group of people in and give them an amazing dinner. Well, let's, uh, I feel like I'm taking everyone through a little bit blindfolded because um, you know your cuisine and I know a little bit about it, but let, let, let's let uh, dive into that and maybe we'll, we'll loop back as relevant. So tell us more about what you do at Bull Rush and what Ozark Cuisine is. And I really want to get you to explain why you decided to, to kind of limit yourself, which is not, which is to say there's a broad range, but you're focused on this one recreation or inspiration of the mid 19th century. So tell tell us about that. Well, I, because your listeners are all over the globe, um, I think it's important to say when we talk Ozarks, 
we're talking about a geographic feature. So technically, it's a plateau that's in the bottom half of Missouri, the top third of Arkansas, a little bit of Oklahoma and Kansas. And so that geographic feature is the focus because when the United States developed in the 18th and early 19th century, that was a place that people were moving into as they expanded westward. And so now that I've defined that, I'll back up and say my family comes from the St. Genevieve, Missouri area, and they got there in the 1840s. That is the oldest European settlement west of the Mississippi, if you don't count Santa Fe, which having lived in New Mexico, I very much count Santa Fe. Um, but but that's the, the claim to fame. And our family got there in the 1840s. And so what I wanted to do when I moved back to the Midwest was just explore that food of my childhood, that food of my family lore and legend. And, and um, I didn't know where it was going to go. And I, I've got to say, as I dug into that world, I quickly realized uh, that was very much not food uh, that I could build stories around. It was very limited, very um, humble, not even in an exciting, humble kind of a way. And so um, I started digging around for old church cookbooks from the region because all those old churches have them. And they, I knew they would all be thrilled that someone would be interested and as I started digging through them, I saw a lot of casseroles and a lot of jello salads. And every now and then there'd be a gem in there. And I, I've since learned about the history of companies who made these books for churches to sell as fundraisers. So there's a lot of homogeneity in those books, things that weren't unique to the region. And that process, though, led me to a historic cookbook collection in Springfield, Missouri. And that led me to Fayetteville, Arkansas, to the university where they had a, a rare book collection. And that ultimately took me to Little Rock and the public library where they have the Butler Center for Arkansas Studies. Now, that's Arkansas, not all the Ozarks, but we focused on the Ozarks. And all of a sudden, things really exploded for me because I was handling letters from the 1820s that were written by some settler back to their mom in, let's say, Boston talking about how they came to this uh, relatively undeveloped area and started hunting, trading with the indigenous people, what they were growing, what they were trading with their neighbors, and capturing these voices who were just average people, not famous people, and seeing the potential to give a new voice to the past that had been lost to time. And that was kind of the starting point. Again, I didn't have these grandiose visions at the beginning. But as I did it, I started to realize, okay, if I focus on the Ozarks specifically, it gives me some parameters to keep me from getting too unwieldy. And I was very quickly able to define it as the indigenous people who were primarily the Osage, although also the Cherokee, the settlers who were primarily European-centric, and they oftentimes would bring the enslaved. And I had three distinct cultures with all their subcultures that I could explore what they were eating um, and growing and hunting in the area. So, you know, the, your question about why limit myself? Well, there's an old African proverb which uh, talks about being out in the dry land and, and there's different ways to find water. You can dig a hundred holes that are shallow or you can one, dig one hole that's really deep. 
which one of you are more likely to find the water? And so for me, I want to dig one really deep hole. And uh, so I don't see it as limiting at all. There's just so much stuff coming out of this research. And, and what were some of the key discoveries? Because one of the things that I think is interesting is you're doing something that is hyper-local in a way, but it's still a merger of the cultures of that particular region. So what are kind of some of the maybe aha moments for you in digging this deep hole? Well, I, I keep coming across gems that uh, I didn't anticipate um, had no idea I would find because, you know, I don't find recipes typically. There's very few recipes, maybe starting in the 1840s, 1850s. We find some, especially after baking powder got introduced to the commercial market. Uh, but it's more things like, um, oh, the, I found a historic seed list from 1841. It was at the recorder of deeds office for the city of St. Louis. And this poor seed store owner was going bankrupt and he needed a loan. And so to get the loan, they uh, recorded his inventory for uh, collateral to the loan. And so that list had 95 specific seeds that were grown in this area back in 1841. Uh, You know, that's fascinating. That's a goldmine of information. Um, Another quirky one, we found a, a place called Tremont House Coffee House in 1830. And they had a similar situation, some financial troubles. So the recorder of deeds documented their inventory and their inventory showed all the different liquors that they had um, in house. And it was a really unusual list. I mean, things we know, of course, but it wasn't as broad as you might expect. And what was more interesting to me is in the middle of the seven liquors, it said a five gallon barrel of vinegar. Now, if the vinegar had been at the beginning or the end of that list, I would have thought, oh, they've got vinegar for, I don't know, pickling or something. But it was in the middle of the liquors, which told me that it was being used at the bar as a souring agent for drinks. So for the restaurant, we don't have lemons or limes at all. We only use vinegars to sour our drinks. So it's quirky things like that. I mean, none of this is necessary. It just makes it fun. So it's like, yeah, I was going to say, it's kind of your challenge you because you've set yourself these parameters, but they're not 100% like consistent, right? You've chosen the certain time period. You've, you, you've created your own boundaries, which is to some way create challenges for yourself and, and to create invention. Is that right? Or? Yeah, and it drives my staff crazy. And also, I think they appreciate the challenge because, um, yeah, no one is making us do this and we don't do it in such a rigid way that uh, our, our food is limited. I, I had a local foodie, um, an influencer say to me last year, you know, if you would broaden your ingredient palette, I think you could do amazing things. And my response was, yes, I could. And then I would be much more homogenous with every other chef, every other restaurant in the country. It's like, I won't, again, I want to dig that deep hole. What can I do? How, what can I feed you? that you've never had before, or how can I do it in a way that you've never had it before? That's much more interesting to me than flying in seafood from the coast and doing an Ozark twist on it. And so how much is are, are your is your food and the parameters that you've used for locals' ingredients, how much does it steep itself or leverage the, the indigenous uh, traditions of the area? 
Yeah, the so again, going back to I didn't know what I was doing when I started. That was just barely a blip on my radar because my last restaurant was a foraged food restaurant, a very hardcore foraged food. So I knew coming back here, I was going to be going on to the woods multiple times a week, gathering ingredients, bringing them back and cooking them. Well, if you look at my forage food list and you compare it to the, the documentation of what the indigenous people were eating, of course, it's near identical. But as I realized the, the historical and cultural and political importance of honoring the past and the people who are part of what we now know of as Ozark Foods, um, I knew I needed to do a little bit more. But I also was aware that that's not my story to tell, right? I mean, um, I don't have indigenous background in my family history. We're very, very German. And so I reached out to the Osage Nation. They have an Office of Historic Preservation. And um, Dr. Andrea Hunter is the director of that office. And so the initial conversations I had with her were really me dancing around a question that I didn't know how to ask. Um, the question is and was, um, how do I incorporate your story into my story or how can I include you in the telling of the story? And I don't know if that's even the right question or an appropriate question to ask. I just know that I can't tell my story without acknowledging your story as the Osage people, because you were there long before the settlers and the enslaved came to the area. Uh, you know, and sometimes I'll have people say, well, you say this is Ozark, but Osage were there for many, many, many years before that. And my response to that is, yes, but Ozark food that we think of today comes from the, the, um, the convergence of those three cultures. And so if we only look at the Osage or we only look at the enslaved or we only look at the settlers, then we can't see what we contemporarily view as Ozark food. So you even here, I have to dance around your answer because I, I don't have the answer. Um, and the process becomes much more important. What did the Osage leader say to you in response? Well, Dr. Hunter, uh, she's a paleoethnobotanist, which I love that. I didn't even know that existed. <laughs> uh, I now have three paleoethnobotanists in my, my spheres who helped me with the research. And uh, she shared her doctoral dissertation with me, which was... Uh, 17th and 18th century Osage foods. It was broader than that, but that's the part she shared with me. And um, and she said, you know, th this is what we know was being consumed and here's what was being used for ceremony. And so, you know, this is fair game for you to, to talk about, but I still can't talk about it. Uh, not to my customers. I can't tell that story. So, she is very supportive of me exploring this. And because I'm not at the point of using it in a direct way, um, we just haven't gotten to that, that really hard answer to the question yet. I see. So, so I think you're openly admitting it's a work in progress to figure out what's, what's the balance, what's the right way. And of course, I, I think we should make clear to listeners that Bullrush is not presenting it as a native foods or indigenous people's restaurant. Yeah, not, not at all. Um, it, I think this and the enslaved are really the exact same question uh, because we're coming from oral tradition and 
the little written documentation is most often from the white man's perspective. And so while it's not that that information is not useful, it's not the information I want to use. I mean, we, we don't use textbooks at all in our research. We are completely original source documentation. Well, how do I do original source documentation when uh, we're talking the Osage or the enslaved and that doesn't exist or it's, it's very hard to find? Um, so, no, we don't do Osage food. We don't present it at that Um and if Dr. Hunter were to sit down for dinner this week, she would see all sorts of things that I've been foraging over the, the past couple of years that align directly with the food that she knows was eaten by the Osage people. Got it. Fascinating. All right. We're going to come back with more from Chef Rob Conley about how he's building a more sustainable restaurant and food system in St. Louis. That all relates to what we just discussed. Stay with us. We'll be right back. This episode is brought to you by Root 11 Potato Chips. From the moment Root 11 dropped their first batch of chips back in the early days of 1992, they understood their destiny as a high-quality producer. Instead of succumbing to the frenzy of mass production, they took advantage of their small size and made chipping a personal art form. The payoff was immediate, an incredible potato chip. With a secret recipe and superior ingredients, their mission is to make an outstanding product in a safe and clean environment. In this world of uncertainty that we live in, Root 11 potato chips believe comfort food can be just that. Know where your food comes from. To learn more, visit rt11.com. Welcome back. We're talking to St. Louis chef and owner of Bull Rush, Rob Conley, about his resurrection of mid-19th century Ozark foodways and how it fits his slow food vision. So we're talking a little bit around um, how your food has elements of indigenous people, enslaved populations, traditions, European settlers. It's all a melange. But one of the other things that really, I think, led you into this path when you returned to Missouri is your interest in hyper-local things and particularly in foraging. And I was curious, uh, and also I meant to give some context, because Rob and I are both Missourians, both of us bastardized Missourians, maybe. But, <laughs> um, but the Ozarks, first of all, if you watch Netflix, that's the right region, but it's not shot there, so it looks slightly different. And it's also, it's a mountainous region, but not big, huge mountains. It's very lush. If you know Appalachia all at all, it's a little bit like Appalachia and has similar um, settler populations. And then, of course, it, it, it spans into several states, the majority of which is in very southern part of Missouri, very northern part of Arkansas. Did I get that right, Rob? Do you want to add anything to that? No, that's that's accurate. And, and the reason those mountains aren't huge is it's an ancient region. So those mountains have been weathered over time. Yes, and at some point it was probably deeply underwater as well. Yes, yes. Um, so it's got sort of things related to being under a seabed. And then the other thing, in case you've never been to St. Louis, and uh, St. Louis is actually now quite a big city. It's probably 3 million people, give or take, and maybe more now. And the other thing about it in 1820, though, it would have been a very small place because the big boon to cities in the Midwest was after the railroads came more like 1860, 1880. So 
when he's talking about that period, you, you are talking about like Western outposts that would have been pretty basic and small. So moving back to the present, in 1820, foraging would have been a boon, I think. But in, in 2021, how in a huge metropolis are you able to generate the kind of quantity you need for a restaurant? And where can you forage in the city of St. Louis? Well, I don't do much foraging here in town. And for me, that's more about food safety and uh, chemicals and pollution um, and my own enjoyment. I like to be out in the middle of the woods, in the middle of nowhere gathering. Uh, so yesterday I went out looking for red bud blossoms and I drove oh, 20 minutes outside of town and got to a uh, an area that has all sorts of county and state parks. And that's the type of place I enjoy foraging there in private land that's a little bit further out. Um, you know, the, the issue about the volume of food, um, just keeping in context that my last restaurant was in the high desert of New Mexico. And so there was nothing out there. Like <laughs> you would go out in the, the desert and you would say, how did people survive? But the Apache and the Membriano people before them, they weren't they weren't nomadic. They stayed in the same area for the most part, some hunting movement, and they lived year round in that area. And so I learned very quickly from some of the indigenous people there and uh, this really great uh, foraging mentor who is more from the hippie tribe. And he, he would take me out and, and show me things that really opened my eyes to the possibilities of food. And so coming back here to the Midwest where it's lush, and there's just so much out there. Um, there's more food than I could ever possibly gather for the restaurant. But it's not about volume to me. It's about quality. And, you know, I don't mean that in a cliche way, but uh, there's a chef back in New Mexico who said, well, this concept back in New Mexico will never work because you need to be able to have the food to create your menu. And I had never done this before. So naively, I said to him, well, why wouldn't I just create a menu based on the food that I have? And it's it seems like such a basic concept, but from a business perspective, his model makes more sense. Control your costs, control the flow of your inventory to be able to make sure that you can bring the customers in and feed them the, the right amount of food. I have ingredients that will be on the menu one night, one week. Uh, I just, a couple of weeks ago, uh, had someone share a flock of geese with me and we processed the geese. I made uh, goose breast prosciutto out of some of it. And that's going to last me, I think, one night, maybe two nights. Um, that's fine. Then the menu changes. And guess what? As a kitchen person, I won't get bored <laughs> because I'm constantly creating something new and unique. Wow. I realized I left out one. I thought I covered so much in that explanation of the Ozarks in St. Louis, and I left out one key detail, right? You're in the Miss Mississippi, the mighty Mississippi, where it's quite wide and powerful valley. And how much does the river influence what you find in when you forage? Um, I, I think I have to say not much. And, and here's the reason why. The Mississippi, as it flows today, is not in the Ozarks. And so it's not, River Valley is not my focus. Uh, that said, one of the other paleo ethnobotanists that I work with, uh, she focuses on three to 5,000 years ago. And one day she and I were talking, and when I talk about forage, I always talk native versus invasive in terms of the plants. 
And she stopped me and said, the problem with you using that terminology is what's native or invasive to you may not be native or or invasive to the region a thousand years ago, 3000 years ago, 10,000 years ago. And so it really helped me reframe um, this this arbitrary timeline uh, and said that everything really is fair game. <laughs> Just understanding the history and the context is what's important. And so what are some of the examples of kind of your favorite things to forage that fit your Ozark uh, mandate, but are local? Because I assume most of the time you are not driving all the way. Because also the other thing we have to say is the Ozarks are not actually that close to St. Louis. Or are you going all the way into the Ozarks to forage? Or are you just foraging within an hour around St. Louis? Yeah, it, I, I do everything. Um, I, I get down to the Ozarks as often as I can. Uh, more, though, for the research than the forage, uh, because, again, we only work with original source documents. So I have to get down to the different counties, to the different historical societies to get that information. Um, but as far as my favorite foraged ingredients, there, I think there's nothing better than wild greens drizzled with hot bacon grease. Uh, you know, this is for me to eat. Like, I wouldn't serve something that simple and basic at the restaurant because we're fine dining and tasting menu and all that. Um, but I, I don't think there's anything better than that. Uh, just recently I was, this, this may not be in everyone's wheelhouse, but I was just recently uh, accepted to be a judge at the world squirrel cook-off championships. <laughs> and so, uh, you know, we're talking forage, but animals are part of that through hunting and an important part of the traditions uh, to the region. Um, I, do you I, serve do you serve squirrel at the restaurant sometimes? No, I don't think the health department would allow that. <laughs> There's some lines that can be fuzzy. Um, that would not be a fuzzy line to the health department. <laughs> is that be, is that because squirrels can still be rabid? Um, it's because we have to buy from approved sources, and so it would have to be a farmed squirrel which as far as i know no one is farming <laughs> no one squirrels. started farming squirrels yeah oh my. i did i did just recently find um mention of someone who's selling raccoon meat in a very public way which makes me think someone is farming raccoons and i i, I haven't gone down that path yet because that might be pushing my customers a little too much i know i could get people to eat it but i I don't know. That, that may be going further than I want to go because I, I've never wanted this to be um, a gimmick. You know, this has to be authentic. Otherwise, it doesn't work anymore. If we're, if we're playing uh, banjo music every night, I, I think we've jumped the shark, so to say. <laughs> I also, I want to cover some of the other stuff because there, there are so many components to what you're doing. We've talked about you, you, the sort of philosophical part of how you compose your menus and some of the ingredients but then there's other sides of how you run the restaurant that i wanted to cover and so one further example is in addition to all of this you aspire or maybe achieve being a zero waste restaurant and i wanted to ask you about you know how much how time intensive that is do you find that it 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 increases your cost, so you have to push pass those on to the diners. How have you have you succeeded in achieving that? Well, I, I think we're as close as anyone can get. Just for a perspective, before COVID, when we when we downsized, we were doing five gallons of food waste a week. And when I say five gallons, it's one of those uh, hardware store buckets, and we fill it up 
And that food comes back with me to my my house where I have a, a community garden and a compost bin. So it's not even being thrown out. Um, there's a lot of aspects to this. Like we don't give you portion sizes that mean means food comes back on the plate uh, because that's a very common thing in American restaurants. No one leaves hungry, but you're not going to have excess food because we served you gigantic portions. But it, to me, it's kind of the opposite of what you're saying. It, it doesn't take more time. There's a little bit of time up front um, because we convert all this stuff. Let, let's talk like um, corn cobs or potato peels or any of those things that in your house you would throw away or or you might compost. We take all of that, every single piece of it, and it becomes a miso. It becomes an amino acid, a vinegar, kombucha, pickles. Um, we we My favorite one that I tell home cooks is keep all that stuff in a Ziploc in your freezer. And when that Ziploc is full, put it in a baking pan, cover it with water, put it in the oven overnight at the lowest temperature. And then the next day, put that into a blender, turn it into a sludge and um, then freeze it. What you've just created is basically a, a bouillon cube. You know, it's this flavor packed um, starter for soups and stews and whatever else. And there's all sorts of stuff. Well, all those things I just mentioned, that's like, a, I don't know, five to 10 minute project, but then it's a long time in a closet. You know, three months, six months, a year, two years. I've got I've got some things that have been going for uh, since back in New Mexico because they're not quite ready yet. So what it does take is time. It doesn't take money. Uh, it, it's virtually free. Uh, there's some quirky ingredients we need to help things along like koji. Um, but no, I, I think we are doing a great job. I'm really proud of my staff for how they've achieved zero waste. And, and one of the things I'm really excited about is as time goes on and staff turns over like it always does in restaurants, people from my restaurant are going to go up to other restaurants and start questioning that 30-gallon trash can of food that goes out every night. And they'll say, why are we allowing this to happen? And I, I can see a longer term change happen because of that, because I think most chefs see this as extra work. And it's not really it, it's not really that much extra work. And certainly it's no more cost. Where do, where does your enthusiasm for for the investment of, of, of time and energy and really it's forethought and planning? Where, where does it come from? Is it a concern for the environment? Is it the challenge? Like, where's your, I would say, principal motivation for it? Yeah, I, I think the challenge is, the excessiveness is the challenge. But to me, it's, um, again, coming from New Mexico, where food was so scarce, foraged food was so scarce, um, I really came to appreciate the value of the life that led to the food on my plate, whether it's a plant or an animal. Um, I always know my farmers. I always know the ranchers. And to know what they put into that plant or that meat that I then process, how can I waste it? You know, I, I know they're not getting paid enough for the effort that they put into it. That's that's one of the challenges of farming. Um, so for me to then take, let's say, a, a pig and only use 90 percent of it because the other is too much work or it's too hard to work with. Uh, I, I can't do that. And, and so what drives my staff really crazy is every day I'm looking in that compost bucket and I'm looking <laughs> in the trash and I'm saying, what 
what's ending up in the trash, what's ending up in the compost. Just recently, I, I started seeing plastic bags in our trash. And I started thinking, wait a minute, why, why are we having plastic bags? Our farmers don't deliver their ingredients in plastic bags. And I realized because of mostly the time of year we are, it's winter or coming out of winter, um, we're starting to get stuff from some of the distributors. We have distributors here in town who buy directly from the farmers. So it's putting a middle person into that process and they're delivering in plastic bags. And so the question is, can I get that not put in a bag before it comes to me? Um, because it just drives me bonkers at this point when there's stuff in my trash or in my compost. And if there's something in the compost, whoo, my staff knows they better find a solution for it real quick. You know, and we have two challenges there that I found over the past two years, corn husk and celerac or celery root, uh, the outer peel. Neither of those, we can do a few things with them, but the amount that we use, I can't use enough. And so that ends up in the compost and that, that frustrates me, but I'm, I haven't, crack that nut yet. Well, maybe you need to build furniture or something <laughs> out of them. Those are like the, the things that have maybe a second purpose. Or, so or maybe it's find a, a third party vendor who can turn that corn husk into a plastic park bench or something. I don't know. Yeah, well, there's the new plastic. Uh, well, it's not plastic. It looks like plastic packaging that's made from corn products and yes. things like that. So before we run out of time, I want to ask you, you mentioned your 1841 list. And I, I think I understood that inspired you in, in an, uh, another direction related to like seed saving and kind of forming, an, an I don't know if it's an actual organization, but an initiative to kind of uh, preserve and I think replant seeds. Could you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, um, this poor guy, Benjamin Reed, his seed store went belly up around, well, we know it was 1841 because in the city directory he was in in 1841 and 1842, they had run him out of town. He was no longer in the directory. But that inventory was really fascinating because when I heard about it, I thought it will say, oh, tomatoes, cucumbers. No, it had 95 specific varieties of seeds listed. Of those, 70 were commonly available even today. But 23 of them were available if I went through Seed Saver Exchange or Baker's Creek Seeds, and um, they have stuff that's not necessarily in their catalog. And so they provided me with the seeds for 23 plants that I distributed to 12 different growers, everything from backyard growers to professional farmers. And uh, last season was our first, and we got some really cool things like cowhorn okra, the Eliza Jane bird bean, the Saltenberger tomato, um, and my favorite, salsify. Uh, th these are all things that we know were grown. We don't find them anymore in the area. Um, and and, th and then we're working on more challenging ones like the Rowan potato, which doesn't even exist, we don't believe. So we're looking at the hybrids that were derived from the Rowan potato and seeing if we can get those growing. And all this, um, we're, we want to get the seeds back out. When I go to the farmer's market, everyone's got the same stuff and they've got the same stuff because they know it grows well here. I get that. And, and so I have to give my farmers premium prices um, and, and guaranteed money. If they can get it out of the ground, I'm buying it regardless of condition uh, because I think it's important to have some biodiversity and flavor diversity back in this region. Yeah, could you give it? Take could you take one of those products that you just mentioned and kind of um, 
describe how it tastes or how you found it tasting the same or different than maybe the more common variety of it? Yeah, the um, the Sultanburger tomato is a good example of that, actually, because it's not one that you would pluck off the plant and um, put in your mouth. It was specifically meant for canning. So again, put yourself back in the time period and you need food throughout the year and you don't have grocery stores yet. So you need to can. And so it's it's a really delicious tomato. It's very tomato-y um, with big flavor because a lot of tomatoes now are kind of um, muted. Bland's not the right word, but there's that, again, homogeneity of flavor. And uh, the flavor improves once you've canned it, once you've added that heat element and time where the, the tomato can do its thing over, let's say, three months or six months. And so when I open it up later and use it in recipes, um, it's just got such an amazing sweetness and tang to it um, that it didn't have when it was fresh. And so we love that one. And the other one that I'm just so excited about is Salsify. The fact that it's on the list blew me away because you just don't find American restaurants serving Salsify. Maybe in New York, maybe in Napa, uh, but it's all over in Europe. And it's a fantastic ingredient. And we now know it was grown and eaten here in the Ozarks in the 19th century. And so we're bringing it back. It's the one thing I tell every farmer on the list. You can grow as much as you want of this. I will buy every last root of it uh, because I can't get enough. And what do you do? You use it. Well, well salsify is like kind of like spinach. You can eat it raw or you can eat it cooked, right? Both ways. Well, salsify, um, it looks like a, a white carrot, maybe. Uh, it's much more woody than that, though. And so um, typically I roast it or saute it. Uh, we did a soup. Um, we made a salsify soda, uh, fermented salsify soda. Uh, but it's, I don't know, it's it, it's really its own unique flavor. But I would say it's in the realm of a potato kind of. That's not real and helpful. Is it shape, yeah, I'm confusing <laughs> with something else. Is it shaped like a carrot or it's not exactly yes. shaped like a carrot? Oh, it, it, it's like a scrawny carrot. But are they actually not related to carrots or not? Is it just a varietal carrot or not no, necessarily? No, no, no. It's a, it's its own plant. Uh, it's called Scoranzera. And there's two varieties that you can find. The, the 1841 list didn't specify. And so we made a pragmatic decision to do the black salsify, which tends to be um, straighter and less spindly, which I knew would be more functional in the kitchen. I see. And is that a European, though, ingredient, do they think, or do they think it is native to North America? And thank you for giving me more homework to do. <laughs> this, is, this is the nature of the restaurant. We're constantly chasing down information like that. I don't I don't know if it's native or invasive, um, but, but it's something we're going to look into, certainly. Got it. Okay, we're going to take a break, and Rob's going to come back and share his Julia moment. Get in touch. Send us an email or a voice memo to contact juliachildfoundation.org, or better yet, tweet us at juliachildjcf, and let us know what you think about today's show, or share your ideas for future guests. We're pleased to announce the first ever fully authorized Julia Child note card set, published in collaboration with Princeton Architectural Press. Proceeds jointly benefit the Foundation and the Smithsonian's National Museum of American History. It's available at papress.com, bookshop.org, and other leading retailers. We'll be right back. When you flip anything, you really 
You just have to have the courage of your convictions, particularly if it's sort of a loose mass like this. Well, that didn't go very well. See, when I flipped it, I didn't, I didn't have the courage to do it the way I should have. But you can always pick it up, and if you're alone in the kitchen, who is going to see? From Julia's immortal words, we move into our last segment, which we call the Julia Moment. Here's when we ask our guests to share their favorite Julia memory, moment, or how she's inspired them in their career. Okay, Rob, what's your Julia moment? Well, for me, I'll, I'll always remember a quote, and I'm, I may be off by a word or two, but she said something like, if you're not going to be ready to fail, you're not going to learn to cook. And as a self-taught chef, uh, I've always taken that to heart. I, I'm absolutely happy if something fails in the kitchen because I'm always going to learn from it. Well, I think that is absolutely a very, a very Julia tenet, which is you, you, you can't become a good cook if you're not willing to try. And just the nature of cooking means you are going to have some failures, no matter how good your training is. You know, it, it, it's a, not only is it a process of trial and error, right? It's, it's a process that relies on thousands of variables coming together, sometimes even beyond a talented chef's control, like if it's the most humid day ever. Absolutely. I, I, the greater the risk, the greater the reward. Excellent. Well, thank you for uh, joining us, Rob, and sharing about all that you're doing in St. Louis. Well, this has been such a pleasure. Thank you so much, Todd. Our pleasure. And thanks to everyone for listening. If you want to learn more, check out bullrushstl.com. It's at bullrushstl on Facebook and at bullrush underscore STL. And he's at Chef Rob Connolly. C-O-N-N-O-L-E-Y on Instagram. For all the news from the foundation and to hear about new podcast episodes, make sure you're following at Joya Child on Facebook and at Joya Child Foundation on Instagram. It's at Joya Child JCF on I'm at T. Shulkin on Twitter. We're about to announce the lineup for 2021 Santa Barbara Culinary Experience at SBCE.events. Make sure you're also following at SB Culinary Experience on Instagram for all the latest updates. The Julia Child audio clip from The French Chef is used with permission from our friends at WGBH. Thanks as always to my co-producer at the Foundation, Lauren Salkeld, and our sound engineer at Heritage Radio Network, Amanda Wang. Our theme song is New French Horn by Novi Veltorni. We're on the air on Heritage Radio Network on Thursdays at 4 p.m. Eastern, 1 p.m. Pacific, with downloads available soon after wherever you find your podcasts. We look forward to bringing you back into the Foundation's world next time on Inside Julia's Kitchen. This program is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter. Our handle is at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com forward slash heritage radio network. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, and more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the AHRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.